0: know the truth, and know how we are to live in accordance with the truth. pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we have spent uh, 12 weeks in the book of Daniel, and that finished up last week, and we're starting a brand new series today, um, which is also going to be 12 weeks. Um, Daniel turned out to be a, a pretty cool series. Mike was more excited about Daniel than I was when we started, but Hey, we found a lot of great spiritual truths in the book of Daniel, and I really enjoyed it, and I hope you guys all did too. There was a lot of, uh, of good, important things that we learned, and this new series um, is going to uh, to be a little bit different. Where instead of preaching through uh, one book of the Bible, this is a more topical series where we're going to be looking at the whole Bible and, and moving back and forth throughout it to uh, find... Uh, scriptural truths and themes in the Bible throughout the whole of Scripture, and our outline for the series uh, is and is going to follow the major themes from that book that Mike was just talking about. the The Master Life Together book is is uh, is going to be our basic outline, and and I do encourage you, as Mike mentioned, to uh, we have some journey groups that are going through that that book, um, and it, as it says there, it it is a a uh, a thing designed and experienced for small groups. So that's the the author's intention for it. You can do it on your own, but it'd be great for you to get in a group that's doing it. We've got several groups that are doing that. You can check them out at the table in the back if you're not already in a group. Um, But, uh, yeah, so uh, the goals of the book and of our sermon series is to help us all grow in our Christian faith and become closer to God and closer to one another. And we're going to be learning about ourselves, learning about what God expects from us, and about how to make progress toward the being, the person that God wants us to be, and how to improve all of our relationships as well. And we're going to learn to know God better as we read his word together, and we're going to hear and discuss what it means for our lives. So as you can see, we have chosen a bit of a different title than... uh, then the book title. Uh, we are decided to call our sermon series a "Godly Life," because uh, we like that title, and uh, and we felt like that comes straight from the Scripture. The the memory verse for this month, where uh, in First Peter, where he says, "God has given us all we need to live a godly life," and um, and as we're seeking to understand what that godly life is and how we can make changes in our current lives. To make us more godly. And we chose this image of a a flourishing tree. And the tree image is it's really a cool thing because you've got the the tree that is full of life, and it also shows that root system, which is all that that underneath uh, support that causes the tree to be healthy. And so that is a symbol of the way that our lives should be, with that kind of flourishing on the surface that is undergirded by all that support below the surface. So, let's uh, let's dive into this series. The first section is uh, in the the major theme of our relationship with God, and this week's uh, session is on being all His. Being all His. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we are focused, we are undivided. We are not partly his and partly our own or someone else's or something. It means that we are fully committed to God. And it means that we acknowledge our complete dependence on him and his lordship over us. We are his. And here's the thing about that is that God demands that from us. You see, God does not want half-hearted disciples. Sometimes we think, oh, God, you know, if I give him whatever I give him, he'll be happy to get. No. God is not interested in your half-hearted following. Um, some of the most clear statements of that principle come from Jesus himself. We're going to look at a few of the times when Jesus talked about this. Uh, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to start. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Verse 23 where it says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? See, this is a call to give ourselves fully to God. Jesus says that if we try to hold on to our lives, if we try to to save our own lives, we will lose. But if we give up on that and we deny ourselves and we give it all to God, we will be saved. And there is nothing worth holding on to. Even if you could gain the whole world, it's not worth holding on to. But if we give ourselves wholly to God, we will be rewarded. Another time, Jesus put it like this. This is uh, from his uh, Sermon on the Mount where he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And now, Jesus mentions money here as a particular rival to God just because it's such a common one, but the principle applies to anything. You cannot serve two masters. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a series of short interactions between Jesus and people who wanted to follow him, but also wanted to give some part of themselves to other things. So, this is also from Luke chapter 9. Um, starting in verse 57, it says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Do those uh, responses from Jesus seem kind of excessive and unreasonable to you? They kind of do to me. Why do Jesus' responses to these people seem so uh, unsympathetic toward these potential disciples? I mean, these people are all making positive steps toward Jesus, and we do know that from from other uh, the rest of Scripture that Jesus does have sympathy and compassion for us. But here, he's making a point. Right? He's making a point of the commitment required to be his disciple. And, and in reality, I'm sure that the interaction between Jesus and these people was more than one or two sentences, right? But Luke has recorded it in this way in order to emphasize that, uh, that requirement. I'm sure in the, the more complete conversation, there was probably a little more sympathy uh, expressed from Jesus. But, but Jesus wants to make sure that we know that you cannot have divided loyalty. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. See, God wants us to be all His. And this theme comes up frequently in the Bible. In Romans chapter 12, it puts it in another uh, somewhat kind of a shocking way. In Romans 12 here, it says... um, Let's see here. He says, "Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship." Now, that idea of uh, offering yourself as a sacrifice, it does not mean that you offer some part of your life as a sacrifice, some part of yourself as a sacrifice. If you think back to the what Paul's uh readers would have heard when they first read this, what's a sacrifice? A sacrifice is when you take a sheep or a goat down to the temple and you cut its throat, drain its blood, burn the body on an altar. The sheep is not uh giving up some small part of itself. Right? This is a complete sacrifice. Of course, uh Paul Uh, adds that key little word in there that this is to be a living sacrifice. He wants people to make sure that they understand this is a metaphor. But the metaphor is a whole and entire commitment, a whole and entire giving yourself to God. When we come to God, we are to come to Him giving ourselves fully to Him. And this idea of being all His is all throughout the Bible, But there's one place that we find this idea that is one of the most important scriptures in the life of Clearwater Church. We we say this uh, this verse together quite often, and and we emphasize it for a good reason, because this particular statement occurs several times in the Bible. One of the the key times comes in the Gospel of Mark, so we're going to flip over to the Gospel of Mark now, Mark chapter 12, and we're going to spend most of the rest of our time here in Mark chapter 12. Um, the story here is that at this point in the story, Jesus is pretty popular, and lots of people are coming to hear him preach, and he's, uh, he's gained quite a reputation, and uh, crowds are coming, and, and it's become so much that uh, the established religious leaders of the day are starting to get worried. They're not happy with Jesus because too many people are listening to him instead of listening to them, and they're fearing that their authority and their uh, position as religious leaders is under threat from this uh, young, new teacher. And so when Jesus travels, bring him to Jerusalem, they decide, hey, we're going to attend one of these teaching sessions, and we are going to bring some questions that will make him look bad. Um, it's, it's actually the same kind of thing, similar to what sometimes interviewers do in politics now, where an interviewer will try to ask questions of a political candidate to try to catch them in saying something that will make them look bad, either to one side or the other of the, of the electorate. Same kind of thing that these guys are trying to do. They ask him questions that will, try, that will split the crowd about him or cause him to say things that will offend people. And so they ask him about where his authority comes from, and they ask him about taxes, and they ask him about his opinions about marriage, which, interestingly, are pretty similar to the kinds of things that uh, people are still asking about trying to get people in trouble, asking about marriage and about taxes. Um, But Jesus gives brilliant answers to all of their questions. And so then we're going to start reading in uh, verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. Where it says, one of the teachers of the law, so this guy is like a religious expert, a teacher of the law being the law of Moses, teacher of the Bible. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And this was apparently a, uh, a question that a lot of religious leaders and teachers had been weighing in on. What is, how, how do we summarize? you got this whole big Bible. What, how, can, how can we, like, summarize the whole thing? What's the most important part of it that we can see uh, to encompass all the rest of it? And so he wants Jesus to take a position on this. And if we read in the context here, this particular guy who comes and asks this question seems to be a lot more sympathetic toward Jesus and maybe even admiring of Jesus compared to the guys who were trying to trap him. Um, he, he seems to, to be genuinely impressed and want a, an honest answer from, from Jesus on this. But anyway, um, <clears throat> here's what Jesus says. He says in verse 29, The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which was one of the books written by Moses after his experience with God on Mount Sinai. He came down and a little time passed before he wrote Deuteronomy, but it's still informed by his experience of God on Mount Sinai. And this was one of the most often quoted sections of the Bible in Jesus' day. People would recite this. And in fact, we uh, often recite uh, this at the end of our church services here at Clearwater. We say, now go out and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and, uh, and it starts out with, the way Jesus quotes it here, it starts out with the statement that there is only one God. God. And that is a crucial idea for us to remember. Now, most of us in our, our culture, and our day and age today, we're not really tempted to think about the, or to, to believe that there are many gods out there um, like people have been tempted to think throughout most of human history and still are in many places around the world today. But even if we're not tempted to think that there are many gods, it's still important for us to think about the fact that there is just one God. Why is that? Well, one reason is because the fact that there is only one God emphasizes the importance of God. Right? God has no rival. There's no alternative out there that is close to Him in importance. He is the only one who is worthy of giving ourselves entirely to him. There's no one else, nothing else, that um, is comparable that we might consider to be worthy of giving ourselves to. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And part of what that means in this context is that he is the only one who is worthy of our love. And the rest of the statement that we say together at, at church here love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this, of course, is another expression of that core idea of being all His. What part of ourselves are we to give to God in love? All parts of ourselves. So I want to talk for a moment here about what does it mean to love God, because obviously it's not the same kind of uh, loopy infatuation that men and women feel towards each other when they fall in love. Um, that's not how we feel toward God. Um, that kind of love, that's great. I'm not dismissing that. I hope that all of you who are couples all experience it regularly. Um, but uh, but that's different than uh, than what uh, what we have with God. Um, And it's also not really even quite the same as the more mature love that we have for our spouse and our family that includes truly seeking the good of the other and choosing what is best for them, even when it costs us. The love of God includes that, uh, but uh, because we are human and He is God, it's a different kind of uh, connection, a different kind of love, a different kind of relationship. Love for God includes admiration for God, of course. It involves seeing his greatness and his goodness and his own love for us. And when we, uh, when we love God, we want to please him. We want to make him happy. And that's why the Bible defines the love of God as obedience to God. So in the epistle of 1 John, he says this. He says, in fact, this is the love of God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. So why are his commands not burdensome? Because he loves us. And that means that he wants us to be happy. And he wants what is best for us. And so he gives us instructions that will lead to us being happy and having a great life. Um, And, of course, there's more to uh, the love of God than simply conforming to his instructions, but that is a big part of it. That is the definition here in this particular context in 1 John. When we love someone, also we want to know them. So loving God includes seeking to get to know him more and seeking after more knowledge of him. And more than that, when we love God, we want God. God. We don't just want the things that God can give us, but we want Him. We want to be in His presence. We want to experience God. In Psalm 42, the writer, if you read the rest of the psalm, he's really struggling with feeling like he hasn't been close to God as he's been struggling in life and dealing with all kinds of hardships in life, and he feels like he's far from God, but he wants to be closer to God. He misses the times of worship that he's experienced in the past. And here's how he expresses it in uh, kind of a famous phrase from Psalm 42. He says, as the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? You see, that is the cry of someone who loves God. And, of course, there's more to loving God than all these things we've talked about. Um, I would say that uh, we grow more and more in our understanding of what it means to love God the more and more we actually love Him, and we we grow and learn and see what else it includes. Um, And the Bible tells us that we are to love Him totally. Love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Now, I don't think that what Jesus had in mind here was for us to break down the precise definition of each of those four things and try to work out which part of you is, the, is in all those things. And, but, but still, there is something to be gained here from looking at those four parts and seeing how each of those, those four uh, parts of us can express love for God. And so let's, let's do that. Let's, um, let's look. First, it says, we are to love him with our heart. Well, the biblical concept of the heart is a little bit different than the way we uh, usually think of a heart in modern American culture. We tend to think of it primarily as the seat of emotions, especially irrational emotions. Your heart is what uh, wants all kinds of uh, irrational things. Heart and brain comics, if you guys have see, ever seen these, trivia comics, exaggerated version for humor, of course, of what a heart, your heart is like and your rational side is like. If you don't know these comics, look them up on Instagram, they're great. But the biblical idea of the heart does include the emotions, but it is primarily the seat of the will. It is your your ability to make decisions and to will and to desire things and to, to make choices. Where we are told we are to have wisdom is in our hearts. We're also to love God with all of our soul. That is, with all of our spiritual faculties. And exactly what that means is is kind of hard to define, but it has to do with our ability to connect to the immaterial, the spiritual. When in Psalm 42 it says, my soul longs for God, it isn't just his emotions, it isn't just his will or his intellect, it is the soul that immaterial desire to be with God, to make a connection to God. And that's what is longing for God the way a thirsty animal longs for the water. The Bible also calls us to love God with our mind. I, I, I think that's really important these days because sometimes people think that Christianity as a religion, um, and, and it encourages us to leave logic and rational thinking aside and just have some kind of faith. And usually when they talk about faith in contexts like this, they mean blind faith, which blind faith, as I understand it, means faith in spite of the obvious fact that it's not true. Um, that is not the kind of faith that the Bible calls for us to have. Uh, the Bible wants us to engage our minds, right? Our, our intelligence was given to us by God, and He expects us to use our intelligence to love Him. That means our thinking must be fully engaged in our religious life. God does not just want our hearts. He wants our brains too. So Christians should have no fear of scientific inquiry or logic or philosophy or literature, any of the other intellectual pursuits. Yes, all of those things have at times been misused to lead people away from God. But so has all the other parts of yourself that he's talking about here, the heart and soul and mind and strength, all those things have led people away from God. But used properly, they can all be used to love God. So engage your mind. Study to know God and His Word. Seek to love God with all of the intellect that He has given you. And lastly, the Bible calls us to love God with our strength. And in this context, that seems to be primarily talking about our physical strength. The work of our hands matters to God. We love Him by doing physical acts of love. That includes things like singing songs of worship, but it also includes things like acts of obedience to God. Remember that we saw a few minutes ago that the Bible tells us that to love God is to obey Him. And much of that obedience requires us to go and do good in the world with our physical strength. So, this is what God wants from us to love Him with our whole self. So, how are you doing? Are you fully loving God? Or are you trying to serve two masters? Or are you trying not to serve two masters, but it's hard not to? This is one of those times when the Bible holds up a standard for us. And when we honestly evaluate ourselves by the biblical standard, we will find that we do not measure up. It's like the time in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is giving a a series of very challenging ethical instructions, and it's clear that he's trying to get people to see that they fail to measure up to these ethical instructions. And just in case they're missing the point, at the end, he summarizes. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with the command to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? It's easy to say, but it's basically impossible to do. So here's a couple of things to keep in mind as we, as we look at these kind of standards that the Bible sets out for us. First thing to remember is that this is not describing what we need to do in order to be acceptable to God and in order for him to love us and save us. What is required for salvation and adoption into God's family and an eternity in heaven with God is to put our faith in Jesus' death on the cross as the full payment for sin and guilt. In fact, if we think that we are contributing to salvation by making ourselves worthy of his forgiveness through our moral performance, that's a pretty good sign that you are not putting your faith in Jesus' death for your salvation, and you are in danger of not actually being saved. So what we're not talking about, we're not talking about a standard that we have to meet in order to be acceptable to God. Right? God loves us despite our sins and failures, not because we have overcome our sins and failures, which we have not. (laughs) So, If this instruction is basically impossible for us to live up to in this life, then what is the point of it? If we cannot be all His, why does Jesus tell us to do it? Well, it's because this is what we are to strive for. This is the goal for which we must work, even if we know that we'll never quite perfectly reach it. And while it may be hopeless to ever truly achieve this goal, it is not hopeless to make progress. In fact, we should expect to make progress. If you're not making progress, that should be a cause for concern. Especially as we work together with other Christians, as we read our Bibles and we're part of a church and we serve God's purposes and we rely on Him more and more in our lives, we will find that we are loving Him more and more. Right now, you might thirst for God less like a deer that pants for water in the desert and more like someone who just kind of feels like a water bottle would be nice. But you can grow. You can learn to love him more. We can make progress. Where you are now is not where you are stuck. We can make progress toward the ideal even if we know that we'll never actually get there. The striving and the improvement are the thing. See, God wants us to be all his. And he wants this for us because he loves us. And he knows that this will will be the best life for us. So let's go out and learn to more and more love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for choosing us and uh, adopting us into your family, and we pray now that you would help us to learn to love you more and more. We We ask for your Holy Spirit to be at work producing the fruit of the Spirit within us so that we can be all yours. Amen.